Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey continues his teaching on the Ten Commandments, focusing on the Third and Fourth Commandments. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Okay, guys, so last week, let me give you a quick recap. We um, made our way um, to the Ten Commandments, and we started what's actually going to be three sermons um, on the Ten Commandments, today being the second, next week being the final. Um, And uh, in the narrative, if you remember, God brought the nation of Israel up to Mount Sinai. He actually brought them right up to the foot of the mountain, and he begins to meet with them in a very undeniable and quite honestly dramatic way. And he shows up in thunder and lightning and cloud and fire and smoke, and it's amazing. And he calls the nation of Israel to stand at the foot of the mountain. And then he calls up Moses to come to the top of the mountain. And when he gets to the mountain, God gives him what's called the Ten Commandments. And he actually begins to give him far more than just the Ten Commandments. He gives him the law, right? And that's actually where Moses would scribe the um, first five books of your Bible, right there in the presence of God as he is writing down the very law of God. And and if you remember, we we hit a few points that are like really, really important. And the first thing that we talked about, we spent a lot of time talking about getting a paradigm shift, right? Changing the way that we look at uh, the law, because typically when we think of the law as Gentiles, uh, we're like, we don't like the law. The law is bad. When we think of the law, we think that's the thing that, that, that we got saved out of. We don't want anything to do with the law. Or perhaps we think um, really, you know, maybe the, as Americans, we're a little rebellious at heart. When we think of the law, we think of something um, like that's governing us that we don't like. And, and so if you remember last week, I made it a, a huge point to, to try to change our perspective as we are coming to the Ten Commandments. What we're not doing is we're not looking at them as a judge who's decreeing law. Because if a judge is decreeing law, the way it's going to feel is restrictive. And we're not going to look at it as a a master giving commands because then it's going to feel oppressive. But rather what we're going to do is we're going to look at it as a father giving rules and family values. And if we we look at it as a, a father who's giving rules, a good father who's giving rules, it doesn't feel oppressive. It doesn't feel restrictive. It actually feels very safe. And that's how we need to look at, uh, uh, we have to, we need to look at this passage. That's how we need to look at the law. It is actually a father talking to his children for the first time, mind you. This is the first time he's talking to the entire nation. And he's saying, hey, listen, if you're going to be a part of our family, you're going to act like you're a part of our family. If you're going to claim my name, you need to act in the same manner that I act. And so if you remember, we moved on from that point, and then what we did is we looked at a very important um, aspect of this, and that's that the law was not given to the people in the land of Goshen, but after their deliverance. The law was not given to them while they were in bondage, while they were um, held in captivity, while they were being oppressed by the nation of Egypt, but rather God set them free and then gave them the law. And that's really important because it's actually an allusion to the gospel. What he did not do was go to them under their oppression and say, if you do these 613 things and you do them for X amount of time, then I will set you free. It was not works unto deliverance and works unto salvation. There was salvation first. And the Bible says that, that God actually only saved them because he heard their cry. They cried out to God. He heard them and he saved them. And then after Afterwards, he said, now it's time you look like me. And then we began to look at the first two of 10 commandments given. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall worship no other idols, right? And, and, and we talked about what that looked like and the idea was very simple. You shall have no other gods before me means you're going to worship no one else and you will have no other idols means that you will worship no thing else, nothing else, that that no one else is God and nothing else is God. And that's how we need to set up our life, which means this, that you're not allowed to worship a person, a celebrity, a pastor, somebody who's gifted, anybody that you look up to, you're not allowed to worship them. But it also means that you're not allowed to live in such a way that you're garnering others' worship, that we are not the object of worship, that he ultimately is the object of worship. Now, that was last week. 
Today we're going to pick up and we're going to hit commandments three and four. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain and the one on the Sabbath. All right, now they may not seem super exciting to you, but I'm kind of jazzed about them. But before we get into the third and fourth commandment, um, I, I, I want to I tell you something. Um, just kind of move aside from the Bible for just a second. I, I just want to encourage you for a moment. Um, we're getting ready to, to really hit a lot of the behavioral commandments, right? Uh, no other gods, no idols. While those are behavioral, they're, they're mainly heart issues, okay? From this point forward, we're actually going to look at, at God saying, okay, in light of those things that are happening in your heart, I want you to do something very specific. And, and here's the thing is we're going to unpack all of these. And when we unpack all of these, what I'm hoping that you're going to see is how often you and I both probably violate these. The goal of this is not just to teach it, but to allow it to really search our hearts and, and to, to, um, uh, to pierce us in our deepest um, and then the deepest part of our soul, okay? But here's the thing. What you're gonna find is that there's a difference between breaking the letter of the law and breaking the spirit of the law. And you'll hear, you'll hear that vernacular if you're in church um, quite often, um, and it's in the Bible, that there's the letter of the law and then there's the spirit of the law. And I'm gonna be honest with you, for years I heard it and I didn't really understand what it means. And it's really important as we're going through the Ten Commandments, because what you're going to find is you may not actually ever violate the letter of the law, though you may violate the spirit of the law. And of the two, the spirit of the law trumps the letter of the law. Here's what I mean. The letter of the law is the technicality. Do not murder. I didn't murder, ergo, I didn't break the command. Spirit of the law, do not murder, means don't hate. Don't cancel your brother or sister. Don't look at them as if they don't exist, right? And if you do that, though you may not actually technically murder them, and though by the letter of the law you may be cleared, by the spirit of the law you're not because you violated its intent. And the same conundrum we even find in the American justice system. Okay, the idea is, is like this. So, so, so the spirit of the law in the American justice system is that justice would be enacted, that the guilty would be punished, and the innocent would be protected. That's why laws exist in our country. Now, we all know that that's not how it works, right? right? But that is the spirit of the law. And so something happens to somebody uh, and, and, and the person who is guilty, they go to jail or they receive whatever punishment is, is fit. Uh, and then the, the, the person who is innocent is given recompense and, and they're protected. But what happens? You ever watch those shows or those, the, um, the, the documentaries on Netflix that talk about the person who, who went to jail and they were, they were innocent or the person who, who never went to jail though they should have, but they get out on like a technicality? You know what I'm talking about? Like somebody didn't submit the DNA sample like perfectly. And so because of that, they're like, eh, technically, yeah, yeah, that doesn't work and you're free. We got to be very careful that like in those moments, we don't go by the spirit or the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Because in those moments, when somebody who's guilty walks free, though they checked off all the boxes on the letter of the law, they violated the very heart and spirit of the law, which was justice. Guilty, punished, innocent, protected. And so my goal is that as we're going through each of these commandments, that we're all kind of hurting a little bit. Myself included, we're reading this and we're going, man, even though, you know, on the letter of the law, I'm good. The spirit of the law, I actually violate it and it hurts a little bit. But my hope is only this. I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not going to preach it in such a way that I'm trying to make you feel bad about yourself. It's, it's actually just the opposite. What I want you to do is I want you to realize how fall or how far you short, oh gosh, how far you fall from the glory of God, how far I fall because if we can understand our own depravity and if we can understand our own sinfulness and we can really get a grasp on how really just um, kind of bad we are, then we all of a sudden start to realize how good God is in spite of that. And some of us have a very small understanding of the love of God because we have a very small understanding of our sin nature. And what we're gonna see is we're gonna make much to do of our sin nature in this little 10 commandment mini series in the book of Exodus. 
But it's not to condemn you. It's not to make you feel bad. And if you walk out of here discouraged, I'm sorry, that's not the idea. The idea is I want you to understand, listen, God loves you in spite of this, but it is probably time for us to reevaluate and recommit and reorient to the family values. Because if we're not careful, we will live by the letter of the law thinking, well, I don't violate the family values, but in reality, many of us do. So please don't walk out of here discouraged. Please don't walk out of here feeling bad about yourself. That's not at all the goal. The goal is that we will allow the Bible to to, um, have its way in us, to act as a mirror for our souls, to show us where we need to reorient and recommit. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to be clear. Those of us who are in Christ... He's clothed us in righteousness, his righteousness. And so at this point, you're not striving for salvation. Even though you may fall short in all the rest of these eight commandments, even though you may fall short real hard, you just need to know if you're found in Christ, you're saved. It's going to be okay. Amen. Okay, there we go. Just, I, I, I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be up here and be like, you're breaking every commandment. Go to, you're going to hell. That's not the goal. All right, we're on the third commandment. Go ahead and open your Bibles. Exodus chapter 20. Don't know what verse it is because I didn't write it down. But you can find it. It's probably verse four, five. Exodus 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You shall not Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, how many of you grew up with the holy grandma who was like, don't you dare say, oh my God. You know what I'm talking about? I grew up and I didn't even have an understanding of church, but I understood this, that you do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, I did it all the time, but I knew that the church people didn't like it. Right? It's that, it's that kind of holy roller mentality. It's like, listen, we only say God for good things. And we as Gentiles, that's kind of our cultural understanding of do not take the Lord's name in vain. And, and Jews, they actually have a, a way that they interpret this passage too in kind of a cultural way. What they'll do, um, rather than not say, oh my God, what they'll do is every time they write out the, words G, or the word G-O-D, they will, they will remove the O and put a dash in place of it. That way, if, if uh, they happen to, I don't know, maybe write it down on a piece of paper and that paper gets crumbled up and thrown away, they're not technically taking the Lord's name in vain. They're not desecrating the Lord's name. And that's just kind of how they do that. And we think that's a little weird sometimes. Let's be honest, as Gentiles, we're like, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But what I actually want to challenge you on is that our little version of this um, commandment that we don't say, oh my God, and we don't say GD, though I'm not commanding you to say GD. I don't want you to say that it's bad. But it's so much bigger than that. That commandment is not about putting God's name next to bad words. It's so much deeper and if, you, and if we're honest, it, it doesn't really make sense that we would look at it like we can't say, oh my God. It doesn't make any sense. Like think about this. This is, this is God and this is his first interaction with his people. His first. It is now a nation and he is, he is coming down smoke and fire and thunder and it's, it's dramatic and it's intense and he's invited them according to Exodus 19 to take into this amazing new covenant where he will be their God and they will be his people and he's about to give them new rules to live, new like life commandments, things that, that are going to precede them and they're going to, they're going to last for generation to come. And this is what he starts with. You will have no other gods. I alone am God. That's a big commandment, right? That's really intense. That's fitting for the occasion. And then he goes, no idols. You will worship no created thing. I alone am God. That makes sense for the occasion. And then he's like, and then you'll only put my name next to happy words. Right? Then don't say GD. That honestly doesn't make any sense. As a matter of fact, he says it before he says, don't murder or don't commit adultery. And a lot of scholars will tell you that these are in order of importance. That's wild to me. So he's like, hey, before I talk to you about murdering, make sure you attach my name to happy words, please. That doesn't make any sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? No, 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 no. 
There's, there's such a deep meaning behind the third command. And here's what it is. It's actually um, the, the key to understanding this command is not understanding and not focusing on God's name, but focusing on another word in the command, which is the word vain. Vain. Now, vain is used in all sorts of um, uh, areas in our life, but I, I'm just going to give you the Hebrew word. It is shav. S-H, the, the translation, S-H-A-W-V, shav. Okay? And the word, let me, let me read you the definition. In Hebrew means this, nothing, nothingness, emptiness, lying, and worthlessness. So the idea, when God says, do not take my name in vain, he's saying that we don't lie about God and we don't use the Lord's name for malicious gain or for empty purposes. I'm going to read it again. The idea is that we don't lie about God, that we don't use the Lord's name for malicious gain, and that we don't use his name for empty purposes. Now, all of a sudden, it makes sense given the narrative, doesn't it? Now, all of a sudden, we get why it's before murder. Now, all of a sudden, it makes sense why it's before adultery. It goes from being an easy elementary commandment that we thought we haven't violated in, in, in 20 years, 10 years, I don't know, some of you like a week, Right? To being something that, oh man, perhaps we, we do this more often than we think we do. Maybe this isn't so elementary. Maybe this is really intense. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to reword the third commandment in, in light of the definition that I just gave. Okay? This is what he says. Um, commandments one through three. Um, you shall have no other gods but me. You shall not worship any created thing. And you shall not use me, lie about me, or misrepresent me. That's what he's saying. You shall not use me, lie about me, nor misrepresent me. And if I am honest, and if you are honest, there are many ways in which the church at large breaks this command, and we don't know it. You can have somebody who never says GD, who always says, oh my gosh, instead of oh my God. And they're still violating this command all the time. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you four common ways that we violate the third commandment. Okay? Four common ways that we violate the third commandment. Number one, buckle up. This might hurt. Misrepresenting the name of God by saying something that he never said. Now, I've used this one in the past because it's so profoundly convicting. How many of you have ever been in a situation where somebody went around and they said that you said something you never said? Yep. Isn't that the worst? Don't you feel so misrepresented? And then all of a sudden people have a picture of you or a view of you that isn't accurate because you said A, B, and C, but they went around and said you said X, Y, and Z. Is that not the most frustrating thing on the planet? I hate when that happens, I hate having conversations. And you'd be surprised how often I have those conversations where they're like, you said such and such. And I'm like, I didn't say that. I had that conversation with my seven-year-old daughter today. She is convinced that I promised her that I would get her a guinea pig and my son a bearded dragon. <laughs> and then when I said no, she goes, but dad, you promised me. I said, no, I didn't. I didn't promise you anything. I don't want a bearded dragon. And I don't want a guinea pig. And we proceeded to have this conversation. And she goes, no, no, but listen, um, um, she, this is what she says. She goes, um, I said, Vivian, you misheard. She goes, no, you misheard. <laughs> I was like, what did she just say to me? <laughs> you misheard. I am the Lord in, our, in my house. Right? You don't tell me that. I'm just kidding. But we had a little come to Jesus meeting misrepresenting the name of God by saying something he never said. Now, let me explain to you what this means. This is probably, probably most dominant in our, in our circle of Christianity, our Pentecostalism, our charismatics. Raise your hand if you love to give to prophecy. Amen. Okay, well, everybody should raise their hand. I'm just gonna be honest. The Bible says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, and that's New Testament. So we should love prophecy. But how many of us, we don't like when prophecy is abused. Yeah, that gets really frustrating, okay? In our environment, not necessarily, I mean, not even thinking gate city or gatekeepers, I just mean our realm of Christianity, we are way too flippant with thus saith the Lord. 
If I had a dollar for every time somebody sat there and told me that God was telling them something that he clearly was not saying, I would be loaded. I would not be doing ministry. Let's put it that way. That is one of the most common confrontations I have with believers is they will sit there and they will say, God's telling me such and such. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, but most of the time I'm like, dude, that's not even biblical. We will have somebody who will come and probably some of you, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular, but I'm telling you, some of, us, some of you in the room have probably done it. You've sat down with me or a leader, another, another Christian that you really respect and you're looking for wise counsel and you go, you start right off and you go, the Lord told me that I'm supposed to be with this girl. The Lord told you, the Lord told me she's my wife. Amen. And I'm like, here's the thing, bro. She's a worship, she worships Satan. I'm pretty sure the Lord said, don't be unequally yoked. What do you do with that? No, I know, but there's always exceptions to the rule, you know, and, and you know, she's my gomer. As they'll say, if you guys know your Bible, you know that makes sense, right? Yeah. Right? I'm Hosea, and God's telling me to go marry uh, somebody who's, who's, who's not the Christian. And I'm like, bro, you're not a minor prophet. You need to back off. But listen, this idea of we misrepresent something that God is saying, we do it all the time and we do it flippantly. And it actually is taking the Lord's name in vain. So when you go up to your friend and you, you feel like you have a word from the Lord, I believe that God speaks, rest assured. And I don't believe that it's the exception. I believe that God speaks all the time. I believe that God wants to communicate with you and talk with you and tell you secrets and, 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 and minister to you in the secret place. I believe all of those things. But when you walk up to your brother or sister and you say, I have a word from the Lord for you, you better be sure. You gotta be sure because what you're doing is you're attaching God to something and you better be sure he wants to be attached to it. And I've seen so much harm come in the kingdom of God because somebody said, I have a word, I'm hearing from the Lord. And that person had expectations that God was going to do what the person said. And God was like, I, I never said that, I'm so sorry. And the person got really disappointed. Can I tell you a story? I don't actually tell stories very often, but I'm gonna tell you a story. This is the second one in this sermon. I had a friend, um, I had a, I had a, she was in our youth ministry and uh, we loved her. My wife and I loved her very much. And, and uh, her mom uh, got cancer and like it was, it was really bad. And she uh, got uh, all the prophetic -y, swirly people um, around her life, people who love the Lord, right? Very well-meaning people. And um, she was like, so, so what do you think? And they all came back multiple times in multiple ways saying essentially this, thus saith the Lord, this isn't your time. The Lord's given me a vision, this isn't your time. And so what do they do? They begin to um, tell the daughter, this is not your mom's time. This is the devil. God's greater than the devil. So this, this, this 15, 16 year old girl who we love so much and has been going through um, proverbial hell is watching her mom waste away before her but she's clinging to the hope that the 10 people who were prophetic-y, swirly, and honestly had no skin in the game saying, I've got a vision. She's not going to die. She died. She didn't die because she didn't have the faith. She didn't die because somebody else didn't have the faith. She died because it's appointed for every man to die once. Now, can you imagine the church hurt and the offense that this immature, young 16-year-old, she loved the Lord, but she was still 16. You can only know so much at 16. You can only be so grounded at 16. Can you imagine what she felt as she watched her mom die in front of her? When all of the people said, thus saith the Lord, your mom's not gonna die. Now, it's easy, I think, for some of us to just rectify that in our heads and go, okay, well, they must have not been hearing from the Lord. But when you're 16 and you're just kind of getting to the place where your, your faith is starting to become your own, you're just trying to figure out like what's the voice of the Lord? It's devastating. She walked away from the faith not long after. We can be really careful when we start putting God's name on things, guys. 
because it has far more impact than you might realize. And, and I will just tell you this, um, as, as your pastor, some of you, I'm like your primary pastor. Some of you, I'm just like, I just, we just do a service that you come to and you have other people that are like your pastors and that you would consider wise counsel. And that's great. But so I'm just going to, I'm going to give this to everybody in this room, regardless of whether I'm your pastor or not. If you're ever to the place where you're like seeking a wise counsel about something, please don't go to the person that you're seeking wise counsel from and say, I heard from the Lord. Because do you know what that position, you know what position that puts us in? Now we're fighting the Lord. And it's a very awkward place to be, I'm going to be honest with you. Because the second you tell me that God told you that you're going to marry that person, who am I to speak against what God says? I'm just a person. And so I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a, it seems like a really silly, generic rule, but it's, it's actually really important. Just add two words. And instead of saying, the Lord said, just simply say, I think the Lord said. But it's not, as, it's not enough to just add those two words. You got to really have that heart posture. Because you see, the Bible says that we see in part, we know in part, we prophesy in part. Okay? The Bible says that we don't have the full picture yet. And so there will be times, rest assured, when you get the full picture. There will be times where the Lord speaks so abundantly clear that you know, that you know, that you know he said. But most of the time, you don't if you're honest. And most of the time, I don't if I'm honest, right? Most of the time, we feel, we think, we're going with peace. There was kind of a weird prophetic thing that happened, but was it coincidence or was it the Lord confirming the next 40 years of my life? I don't know. And so, so, so when you go and you seek wise counsel, as you should, when you're making big decisions, what you should do is have the heart posture that says, I, I think the Lord's saying this, but I might be wrong and I'm willing to be wrong. And what I have found is often the Lord speaks predominantly through two outside sources other than myself, the Bible and his church. That is the primary way in which God will speak to people. Yes, there is the one-on-one -on -one aspect. There is the Moses face-to-face -face aspect. Absolutely. But most of the time, he's withholding the clear picture because he's trying to get you deep ingrained in fellowship and community. And he's forcing you to say, if you want to know me, you got to know my bride. So one of the ways that we, the first way that we break this command is by misrepresenting what he says. Um, and, and I will, can I just, I want to just say this too. I, I think, um, I think we probably need to do a better job as a whole. Like, I'm, again, I'm not talking about gatekeepers. I'm actually talking about just our denomination-ish thing, our swirly, charismatic thing, which I love, would never be anything but. But we probably need to do a better job at um, differentiating when we're sharing an opinion versus when we're sharing something from the Lord. Because so often, even if we don't say, thus saith the Lord, if somebody says something convincingly enough and laces a few Bible verses around there, you take it as if it's the Lord, right? And so one of the things that I, I think you can do, and, and I've tried to make this a real practice in my life because I have, I've honestly really hurt people and I've derailed them in some major ways because I didn't do it, is say, hey, this is my opinion. I think you should do this. My, my understanding of scripture probably says that, that maybe you should not date the Satanist, right? But, but here's what you're not doing. You're not going, but thus saith the Lord, right? You're just, because that's, that's not your job and that's not my job. Our job is to simply just share what we think the Bible is saying, right? Now, to some degree, my job is a little bit more accountability-based than, than probably y'all's, but the reality is uh, the same. It, we should all be much clearer about when we're sharing our opinion, just simply say, hey, we're in opinion territory here. Many of you have probably heard me say that. Hey, I don't feel the Spirit telling me that this is the Lord necessarily, but I really think you should consider this. And it will save us from misrepresenting who God is. So here's the next reason. We, the first is we misrepresent um, what God is saying. The second is this. We violate the third command by promoting the name of God in order to build our own platforms. We promote the name of God in order to build our own platforms and kingdoms. And 
Um, this is kind of a hard one to talk about because to some degree we're all fallen, right? And we've all got a little pride in us, no matter like how much we've been crushed. We've just, we've got to contend with the flesh. But what I'm talking about, this is the leader. This is the Christian who they, for them, God is no more than a brand by which to gain influencers, by which to gain followers, by which to gain reputation, by which to gain platform. To them, they are primarily using God so that they can get something out of it. And that's what we do. And I've seen people who do it. And I'm not talking about the person, I'm not talking about the pastor who has a big ministry, because just because you have a big ministry doesn't mean you're doing this. Okay? I'm not talking about the person who's really in conflict and going, man, I, I, I'm just trying to step into what God's asking me to do, but man, I feel this pride and I don't want to do it. I kind of want to shrink back. And But Lord, you're increasing my platform, but I don't know what to do about it. And I really don't want to. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the person who's like riding the train, doesn't care one bit, is all about promoting themselves and using God as their tool to do so. And surely you can think of churches or pastors who have, who have fallen deeply into sin because of this very thing. So the first way that we um, break the third command, thus saith the Lord when the Lord's not saying, by misrepresenting what God says. The second is promoting the name of God to build our own platforms or kingdoms. And the third way that we violate the third commandment is by claiming the name of God, but acting out in a way that disgraces God. Claiming the name of God but acting in a way that disgraces God. Now, what I am not saying is the Christian who is in process and immature, okay? Because immediately you start thinking of all the, the sins that you just did, all the times that you just fell short, all the mistakes you just made. Inevitably, when you hear me say that, that, that we can claim the name of God and act in, in a way that disgraces him, you can immediately think of all the times that you failed. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. You're allowed to be immature. You're allowed to be in process. That's okay. There's so much grace and so much room for somebody who's at least trying to hit the target. But I'm talking, I love that sweatshirt, so sorry. That is a fishing sweatshirt, ladies and gentlemen, and I caught it and I couldn't help it, Right? Not the person who's aiming at the target, but the person who's, who's, who doesn't even care about the target. They're aiming the other direction. They're playing a different sport. This is the Sunday Christian that you might call them. The Sunday morning Christian who has the fish on their car and they, they're faithful to show up to church every Sunday, but they actually do not care about the Lord. They don't care about their life. They, they, they want to do their own life. They don't care about holiness. They're going to be snorting lines of coke. They're going to be smoking pot. They're going to be you know, doing whatever they can to have a better life. Maybe they just don't even think about God the other six days of the week. Maybe they're just living the American dream with a white picket fence and living a good moral life. But God is so far from their heart. That's what I mean. Claiming the name of God, but acting in a way that disgraces him. This is the Christian who claims to know God, but doesn't care about the family values. And then number four, the fourth most common way we break the third command of not taking his name in vain is by using the name of God to control and oppress others. Using the name of God to control and oppress others. Now, immediately, what you may think of, maybe not, maybe I'm like super out of touch, but what I think of when I hear that, I think about um, the Holocaust. I think about Hitler's argument for let's go kill the Jews because the Jews, they killed Christ. And so this is what he did. He goes, all the Christians, let's go kill all the Jews. Using God's name to control and oppress people. Or perhaps you might think of the KKK and the uh, Methodist minister who stood on the top of Stone Mountain and, and professed that he had a word from the Lord. And we know where it went. To oppress, control, destroy, and kill all minorities. Or perhaps you think of maybe the holy wars between the Christians and the Muslims and using the name of God to once again control and oppress others. I'm not talking about any of those things. Actually, today, there's something that's far more prevalent, though those are still very much there. Racism still exists. Anti-Semitism still exists. 
but there's something that goes unnoticed to a great degree in the church. And it's the religious spirit. The religious spirit that seeks to control and to oppress Christians. Listen to me, um, those of you who you, you're going to be leaders in some capacity, um, maybe specifically men in this room, and you feel like one day you're going to be a husband. We can often think that leadership equals control. The religious spirit, it comes from leadership, right? That's just how it works, right? And so often it's, it's, it's this controlling, oppressive, oppressive, you have to abide by our rules, look like us, dress like us, talk like us, act like us. And if you do not, then you're not one of us and you're not one of God's people. And it works its way through leaders. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to understand that leadership is not control. If you're going to be a husband one day, you're going to lead your wife and you're going to lead your kids. And what you cannot do is think that strong leadership equals strong control. You cannot look at your wife and say, you're going to do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it at the time I'm telling you to do it with the people that I'm telling you to do it. Now that sounds crazy, right? In the context of marriage, we're like, gosh, who would say that? Uh, a lot of people myself included. That's how I used to look at leadership. Not only is that how I looked at marriage, that's actually how I looked at the church. That my job was to look at um, my youth group and say, this is how you're going to act. You do what I say. And if you don't do what I say, you can find another church, right? It's that religious spirit that seeks to control and oppress. And here's what I'm going to tell you. What I have found is that godly leadership is not domination, like I just described, but it's leading by example with a gentle, steady, trustworthy, guiding hand. It's going low whenever you can. Controlling leadership leads to oppression, and godly leadership leads to inspiration. And I get so convicted sometimes that even the way that I think about ministry or I think about my role or, or um, I see other people in the way that they talk about their role as um, maybe Christian leaders. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of my job is to control. And you just need to know that control always leads to oppression. I'm not trying to control what you do. Ultimately, you're going to stand before the Lord and it's not, you're not going to have me around. And so you've got to hear from the Lord on your behalf. I am here to help guide. I am here to help put the scripture in front of you. I am help, here to, to help lead you, absolutely. But at the end of the day, you just need to know none of you have to do exactly what I say. And some of you guys, you'll sit in meetings with me and, and I will give you what I call the prescription for your life in the moment. That's what I'll say. You'll have a problem and I'll go, okay, I think this is the solution. And, and, and what you need to know is if I ever tell you that, I am never saying, you have to do what I say to do. And if you don't, then you need to avoid me. I don't want to see you around here. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, I think this could help. Consider it. But that's not what the religious spirit does. As a matter of fact, what's really interesting, if you look at the way that Jesus interacts with people while he's here on the earth, he has only an issue with one group of people. He only has bad things to say about one group of people. And it was the religious leaders of their day. And he hit this idea called the religious spirit. Now here's the deal. The Bible doesn't call it the religious spirit, but that's what we're gonna call it. And I wanna read to you what he has to say because he finally has enough. You gotta think about it, man. He meets the, he meets the woman who caught in adultery. You know, she was caught in adultery during the Feast of Tabernacles where they were celebrating God being with man. And while she's supposed to be celebrating God dwelling with man and being with man, there she is with another man. The woman caught in adultery, nothing bad to say about her. The religious people, those in authority seeking to control and oppress, he has harsh words for them. And he finally has enough. And it comes to the end of his life and he's in Matthew 23. And he's got the Pharisees in front of him and he's got his disciples and the crowds behind him. And he does not play it safe and it's inspiring and it's a really intense. And I couldn't imagine what it must have been like to be there in the moment because this is what he says. He looks at the Pharisees and he turns around to his disciples. And this is what he says. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, 
do it and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garments. It's a Jewish reference to, to, to showing how holy and awesome they are. It says that they, they love the place of honor at banquets and, and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And they love being called rabbi by men, but do not be called a rabbi. For one is your teacher and you are all brothers. He says, I think this is interesting. He says, do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father, he who is in heaven. I get this. Do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And it's a really fascinating, now, and then he would go on from here to literally the next verse. You can read through it, Matthew 23. He's gonna hit eight woes, eight pronouncing, uh, eight pronouncement of judgment against them. And he's gonna hit them hard. He's gonna say things like this, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut off the kingdom of heaven to those who would wish to enter and you yourselves don't even enter. He goes, people want to get saved? And he says, you make them twice as much a son of hell. Isn't that interesting? It's really, that's really intense. Jesus had harsh words to say about religious leaders who were seeking primarily to control, who were seeking to put burdens on people who are not seeking to be servants, but leaders. And so much so that he says, hey, my crowd, don't be a leader. You're not a leader. You're all brothers. I'm the leader. But you are your servants. It's remarkable. All right. I don't know when I started, unfortunately. Let's move on to the fourth commandment. Let me actually recap just real quick. Four ways that we, common ways that we break the third commandment by representing um, the voice of God, by promoting the name of God um, to build our own platforms, by claiming the name of God, but acting in a way that disgraces him, and by using the name of God to control and oppress others. The fourth commandment. Here we go. I think I can knock this out in 10 minutes, actually. You guys in Exodus 20? Read along with me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you uh, within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now, I've mentioned this command a few times over um, the years because I think it's really convicting. We, how many of you guys love rest? Yeah? We hit rest. Oh, my word, we hit rest all the time. In our environment in particular, I have so many conversations where people are like, I'm just trying to sit at the feet of Jesus and I'm just trying to rest. Right? And that's super biblical, and I really love that. And I think that's the heart posture in which you're supposed to live. But that doesn't mean that that's how you're actually supposed to live every single day. And that's sometimes how we take it. I'm just going to sit all day and I'm just going to rest at the feet of Jesus. And then when things, you know, and, and when I, I'll work a little bit, when things get hard, I know I just need rest. And here's what I love so much about this command. The command is two parts, man. You shall labor six days and then Sabbath on the seventh. Let me read it again. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. This commandment so often is only ever talked about in the idea and the concept of rest, but God's actually trying to get at something else. You don't get rest if you don't work. And now listen, there's two groups of people in this room. John's like loving this because John... John's in the second group. John needs to learn how to chill for a moment, right? There are two groups of people in this room. Those of you who you have an aversion to work and those of you who have an aversion to rest. 
And what you need to know is if you have an aversion to work, working hard, working long days, working six days a week is just as much a family value as not murdering someone. That's just as much a part of the culture that God is trying to create within his people. Hey, don't murder, don't cheat on your wife, work hard for six days. That's literally what he just says. Work hard for six days. And if you have an aversion to work and an aversion to hard work, you have an idolatry problem and you're gonna be tempted to worship pleasure and you're gonna do the things that you want to do and what you're gonna miss out on, guys, is a dramatic blessing that work brings. Work, man, work is so valuable. Working hard and working for six days a week. That means that, guess what? Working six days is not being overworked. Glory to God. 40-hour work weeks, those are American. That is not Bible. Think about that. Sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I've had conversations with people, they're like, I worked 25 hours this week, and I'm just, I'm just wiped. And I'm like, oh, brother, you're wrong. Okay, listen. Work is actually a blessing. Let me give you this. Some of you think, wrongfully, if I may, that that work is a result of the curse in the fall. Because you can look at, you can look at the curse and, and in it, it, got, it says that man, would, that man would toil in the ground, right? But here's the thing. God gave work before the fall ever happened. Adam had a job. The curse, the job was gonna get harder. But rest assured, in the beginning, God was very clear, Adam, I want you to keep and cultivate the land. I want you to serve and guard. And it was actually his aversion to that job that got us in this mess that we're all in. If you know, you know. But here's the idea. Work is a blessing because God meets you in your work. Where was God when Adam was working? With Adam. And so many of us, we think that work is just this like awful, painful, I don't want to do it. I'm going to work just the bare minimum I can so that I can live my life. And I'm just going to tell you if, you, if you're not working and you're not working hard and you're not working long, you're missing out on a major blessing, guys. This is, this is not just for the males in the room. It's for everybody. It's, it's in work and hard work that you learn endurance and perseverance. It's, it's where your character is shaped and molded. It's where you learn how to interact with people who don't think like you, look like you, act like you, dress like you. It's where you learn what you can say to people and what you can't say to people. I was talking to somebody the other day and I was literally like, oh, dude, you've been in the Christian bubble your whole life. You've never worked an honest day in your life. And, and honestly, here's what you need. You need a job and you need someone to punch you in the face. Because if you had gotten a job and you were out in the world, you would realize you can't talk to people like that, bro. But you're at church and we're just going to bless you. Some of you guys, listen, you need a job and you need to be punched in the face. Just kidding on that one. But you need to get, you need to get a job. And I've talked to people, man, and it's not even just people in this room. It's not like that. It's just like I've got other young adults that I happen to know. And they're literally like, yeah, I just, I really, yeah, I just feel like the Lord's calling me to a season of rest. And I'm going, hey, listen, you're 18. There's no season of rest for you. You work six days. You take a day of rest. Then you work another six days. Then you take a day of rest. So some of you, you really need to feel that. I'm going to tell you, if you are in this room and you are between the ages of 18 and 25 and you do not have a job, you need to get a job. I love you. You need to get a job. If you have a job and you're working 20 hours a week, but you're going to school full time, you're working. Okay, school counts as a job. You're working hard. You need to learn how to work hard at something. But here's the deal. If you're 20 and you're taking your little gap year and you're working 20 hours a week living with your mom and dad, what you're actually doing, I'm not, I'm not saying this to poke fun at you, what you're actually doing is you're missing out on a major character building season. And by the time you hit 25, you're going to be playing catch up when everybody else is starting your life. And I love you. And I'm trying not, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm not mad at anybody. I just, I, I, I wish somebody was so clear with me when I was your age. I'm also gonna tell you this. This guys and girls, if you are lazy and you don't have a job and you're not moving towards something, it is unattractive, it is unhelpful. And please do not think that you're gonna find the woman of your dreams, fellas, working 10 hours a week and doing the rest of your life 
you know, prestiging on Call of Duty. Okay? It's just not going to work. Now, time out, because this is where it's going to get a little, this is where it's going to get more helpful. I am not like the older generation who's going to look at you and say, you need to never play video games. And when I was your age, I was working 80 hours a week. I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that. I subscribe to a much more, um, what I actually think is very biblical philosophy. Work hard, play hard. Work hard, play hard. You work hard. Give it all you got. Paul, listen, we can get on this for a little bit, but Paul literally looked at all of his people and he said, just so you know, I worked harder than all of you. So he said, I worked harder than all of you. Be like Paul, work harder than all of them. But here's the thing, you can play hard too. So you wanna, you wanna, you wanna uh, prestige in Call of Duty? You wanna grind? Absolutely, do it. But do it with a sincere heart of knowing, hey, oh, man, I can, I can do this. I can take 12 hours and, and play. You guys don't play Fortnite, but whatever it is you guys play now, right? I can do that with a clear conscience because I've been working my rear end off. Okay. Get a job. Also, please stop calling out of your jobs because you're having a, a tough day. Three of you really like that. You better not call out of your jobs because then it's going to get real. The judgment's coming. No, but I'm serious. The idea that we kind of struggle with sometimes, and listen, I, I've been there, where it's like, well, I'm really sad today. I just don't feel like going in. That doesn't teach you anything. That doesn't teach you endurance. That doesn't teach you perseverance. What you guys need to learn, and here's the deal, there's grace. It's not something that you have to just have right now. You need to learn the reward of doing something that you don't want to do and learning how to put on a face. Now, we talk a lot about vulnerability. We talk a lot about being authentic. But there is something to be said for just because I'm sad doesn't mean I need to tell everybody. And just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean I need to have a sour attitude. Okay, the Bible talks a lot about our attitude. Now, you do need to have people that you're vulnerable with and you're honest with. And you don't need to feel like you're coming to church having to wear a mask. But here's the deal. If you work in retail, if you're, if you're a waiter, you need to put that mask on. Okay? It's okay. It's, it's actually okay. Have a good attitude. Put on the attitude of Christ. He didn't complain when he had the cross. He said it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Okay? Dang. That will preach. I didn't mean to say that, but that'll preach. Okay. I love you all. And I just, I, I, I know that all kind of sounded a little intense and I know that was kind of tongue in cheek, but I'm, I'm serious. I love you. And I want you to walk um, in, in all of the blessings that God has for you. And I want to see your character built. I want to see you with happy marriages and whole marriages. So you, those of you who have an aversion to work, learn to work. Now, there are a few of you in the room who you have an aversion to rest. And just as much as working six days is a part of the command, so is resting. And just as much as working six days and working hard is a family value, so is resting. And so the first category of people that we just talked about, they can idolize pleasure, you can idolize productivity. And I watch this happen so often where people get addicted to results and they get addicted to being productive and they find their identity in it, especially in a culture that seems like that's the minority in the world today. It's like that's a badge of honor. I work hard. It's not a badge of honor. You being addicted to work is just as bad as somebody being um, having an aversion to work. It's just as bad in the sight of the Lord. Now, you, your life may look a little better because of it, but it's not about your life. It's about your heart. And here's the thing. Rest is something that God said we need. And you may be like, I don't need rest. And I'm going to tell you, God said you needed it. He designed us to need rest. What's really interesting is if you look at the idea of um, a sabbatical in a, in a Sabbath rest, every seven years, what would happen is they would, they would stop tilling the ground and they'd give the ground a rest because they realized, hey, the, the dirt can't keep up with everything. We just need to let nature take its course, right? And here's what's interesting. You and I, we were made from what? Dirt. Yeah. Rest is important. It's very important. And so if you're addicted to your results and you're addicted to your productivity and you think that it's some kind of badge of honor, what you need to do is you need to chill out, stop shaming people, 
right? Focus on you and the Lord, and you need to stop working. You need to have one day a week where you're not concerned about building your own kingdom. You need to have one day a week where you realign and go, everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm doing, it, it bows the knee to Jesus because Jesus is the most important. And here's what I think that's so cool about the Sabbath command is he actually says it's a mode of worship. He says, you will, keep, you will have the Sabbath unto the Lord is what it says. Let me read it to you. Ready? But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. It's not a Sabbath to you. It's a Sabbath that you're taking unto the Lord. It's a moment where every week, every so often you are sitting and you're going, God, everything that I'm building, even the good stuff, even though the kingdom stuff that's there, all of it, God, none of it's as important as me and you. This is what matters. All of that, as Ecclesiastes says, is vanities. It's all meaningless. It's all worthless compared to you. And I'm so grateful that you would be so good to me. And so Sabbath is actually you taking a moment to remember your kingdom is not that important. His kingdom is far more important and your relationship with him is far more important. And so your Sabbath isn't just about hanging out and playing Call of Duty. It's actually a time for you to reflect on the goodness of God. Now you can do that playing Call of Duty. I'm not saying you can't do that. But the whole orientation of your heart behind taking a Sabbath is taking inventory and being grateful reflecting on God's goodness to you. And if you can't do that, if, you're, if your work and your productivity and your results and your daily planner get in the way of that, that's just as bad as the person who won't get up and go to work in the morning. Does that make sense? Okay. The Sabbath reminds us ultimately of what's important, which is God and family. He says, I think it's interesting that they make sure to hit the whole family. He says, you take the Sabbath, your sons take the Sabbath, your daughters take the Sabbath. And I'm just gonna tell you, you may not get it right now, but you will when you're my age and you have a family. But the most important things in this world are not your kingdom. It's not your job. It's not your calling. It's not anything that you do. It is ultimately the Lord and it's ultimately your family. And the Sabbath ensures that you don't um, leave those two in the dust. Would you guys stand? There's one aspect of rest I do want to talk about briefly because what we see about the, the fourth commandment is that the command to rest is actually fulfilled in Jesus. Oddly enough, it's the only command that's not mentioned again in the New Testament, that's not reiterated in the New Testament. And that's because in Jesus, there is no longer any striving. And so when I made the tongue-in-cheek remark about sitting at the feet of Jesus, and I was like, so many of us just need to get up and start working. We need to have the heart posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus. There is this place now where you and I can rest because here's the deal. We've already scored 100 on the test. We're already saved. Every good thing that we've done is, is going to be stored up. Every bad thing is going to be burned away. And so we're resting in the same manner. Like imagine if I told you to study for a test and whether you pass or fail, it was a big deal. If you pass, you're in. If you fail, you're out. And you're cramming hard and you're learning how to study for that test, right? You're working hard. You're not resting. But imagine if I said, hey, that same test that determines whether you're in or you're out, you're, you're already in, guaranteed, you've already got 100%. At this point, you're only competing for extra credit. You're still gonna study, but you're studying from a place of rest, right? You're not freaking out. And that's the idea, is that Jesus offers us rest now because all of the work has been done on the cross and he offers us rest in the future where one day, guys, the curse will be completely reversed and work will be fun again. There's an eternal rest that we're going to and there is a rest that you and I can have in the midst of working six days and working really hard. We can have an inner peace and an inner rest that says, oh Lord, all of this ultimately is for you. I don't have to prove anything and I have nothing to lose. Jeff used to say it like that, living with nothing to lose and nothing to prove. That's what we get as Christians because of Jesus. And the fourth commandment ultimately is pointing us towards that Sabbath rest.
Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.